What do you do on Sundays? We talk about Kate Blanchett, the acting, the costumes, the awards, but mostly the Blanchett of it all. Oh, oh, I'm not acting. <laughs> you think this is a love affair? I saw you, Erica, meeting in the middle. This is Sundays with Kate, and I'm your host, Mortada El Fadl. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Sundays with Kate. For this week's episode, we are discussing the talented Mr. Ripley, and my guest is Jose Solis. Hi, Mortada. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to have you here. I know. I'm the first. I'm so thrilled. <laughs> also... Like, we have um, exchanged, I think, hundreds of texts about Kate throughout the, throughout the years, maybe thousands. Millions. <laughs> so it's very exciting to have you here and to talk about a movie that I think we both love, The Talented Mr. Ripley. But before we jump in, why don't you tell our listeners about you? Well, I'm an Aries. No, I'm kidding. I shouldn't make jokes. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm a freelance theater critic. I write for American Theater Magazine, The New York Times, and TDF, among others. And I have a show called Token Theater Friends on American Theater Magazine. Oh, yes. And if you are in New York and listening to this podcast, definitely look up Jose's theater reviews. I usually start with asking my guests about the first time they saw Kate. It was the poster for Elizabeth. And I remember her, because she looks yellow, like she looks like the sun. And I remember walking by the theater. I was 12 years old when Elizabeth came out. And I just remember seeing this like red background with this woman who looked like the sun. And that's my first memory of Kate. Wow. Elizabeth was also my first time with Kate. What is your favorite Kate Blanchett performance? It varies these days. It's some days it's Blue Jasmine, some days it's Carol, and I mean, who am I kidding? It's probably definitely Meredith Logue in The Talented Mr. Ripley. <laughs> That's why you are here, to discuss The Talented Mr. Ripley. What do you think of when you think of Kate, when somebody brings her up? Yeah, I think <laughs> about you. I mean, yeah, I call you Kate, so yeah. <laughs> yes. You are the person that I am most comfortable with sharing my obsession with Kate. So. I am? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I feel very honored. Let's introduce our film. So we are talking about The Talented Mr. Ripley. The Talented Mr. Ripley was released in 1999. It was directed by Anthony Minghella. It starred Matt Damon, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Jude Law in his breakout. And the movie is about Tom Ripley, played by Damon, who is uh, a young con artist who meets this man in New York and pretends the man thinks that he went to Princeton with his son. So he sends him to Italy to meet his rich son, Dickie Greenleaf, played by Law, and to try and convince him to come back. But, you know, once there, he's seduced by the life, or it's maybe the life that he always wanted, and... And things happen, amazing things happen, including murder, love, death, there's suicide, everything in this movie. Kate plays Meredith Logue, a wealthy heiress, who is actually the first person that Tom Ripley meets when he lands in Italy. And then she becomes 
the person who sort of complicates the story as it goes along. This movie is based on a novel by Patricia Highsmith, but actually Meredith Logue is a character that Antony Minghella created for the movie, so it wasn't in the original book. Have you read the book? I have not, no. Nor have I, but it's um, it's funny that Meredith is somebody who was created for the movie because she fits the sort of Patricia Highsmith milieu so well. So she, another wealthy um, American, traveling in Italy. All these Americans are traveling in Italy, escaping America, although they are very American in whatever they do. <laughs> and so she's the one who sort of complicates Tom Ripley's journey as he tries to live the Dickie Greenleaf life. Kate comes in eight minutes in, which is very early in the movie. It's a small part, which is funny because Kate, in the beginning of her career, she did a lot of small parts, like The Shipping Muse comes to mind, Babel comes to mind. So this is a very small part for her. She comes in eight minutes, which is early, but then she sort of disappears for long stretches. So she's in the middle of the movie, very impactful, and then at the end, she completely changes how the movie ends, or the character does, anyway. So what did you think of Kate's introduction? I had never noticed that her blonde hair kind of like, you know, it's like foreshadowing for her Carol, but was it 50? 16 years after Ripley because mm -hmm. she that's those are are those the only two times where she's had this like beautiful blonde hair like that I mean I always think of her as blonde but maybe that sort of longish hair yeah like a short like a longish bob and know? it's the first thing we see her hair yeah. she's giving us her back and I was like even just that and it's like her hair so Fucking, can I swear? Yes, you can swear. Her hair's so fucking glorious that it reminded me about me thinking of Kate as the sun the first time I saw her because it's just like there. And you know, you know, like she's surrounded by strangers because she's trying to find her luggage. Yeah. But you know that we're supposed to be looking at her. Yes. Definitely. And she's like, she, she appears in this blurry haze. But yes, you're right. She... The blonde hair is what you see. And then her first words to Tom are, what's your secret? What's your secret? <laughs> Which is, she's asking about why he travels light, but it is sort of, sort of fits with the theme of the movie. He is a man with a secret. And she really sets, that character really sets the tone. What's your secret? Excuse me? No, it's just that you are American, aren't you? No, no, it's just that... I have so much luggage, and you're so um, streamlined. It's humiliating. I'm Meredith, by the way. Hello, Dickie. Meredith Randall. Um, Dickie Greenleaf. Hello. You're not the shipping Greenleaf. Oh, trying not to be. So we can talk a little bit more about the movie before we get into Kate. So the movie in in it, Tom Ripley, who is this sort of con artist who wants, he needs this rich American, Dickie Greenleaf, played by Jude Law. He wants his life. He's seduced by the life. Dickie lives in Italy. He has his girlfriend, Marge, played by Gwyneth Paltrow. They're living it up, idle, um, wealthy Americans living in Italy, trying to escape the wealth and, and the responsibility, basically. And Dickie's seduced by that. And the movie has always 
to me when I first saw it. Um, I remember a conversation that I had with somebody I was going out with at the time that I'm like, he is trying to escape being queer. And I remember in 1999, I was very young and impressionable. And I thought the queer scenes to me were very explicit. What do you think about that? Well, I was a young, closeted little teenager when I saw it. It was one of the first movies where I kind of saw myself. Not that I'm a con artist or anything, because mm-hmm. one of the things that I really love about Ripley is that he, yes, he wants Dickie's life. But more than that, I think he wants anyone else's life but his own. Because when we first meet him, he's also playing someone else. He's borrowed a jacket from someone else. Mm -hmm. So he's always putting on a disguise. And I think anyone who's queer and who's been closeted Mm -hmm. can identify with that. Like, we're always pretending. Like, how long... How long did you claim to be, to be bi for, for instance? God knows I did. Yeah. I was, yeah. Um, I never claimed to be bi, but I did claim to be just not gay. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, you're right. Dickie is trying to escape his identity. And his identity as a queer man, he's trying to escape that. And he sees Dickie Greenleaf as sort of this thing, this idea of exemplary life or happy life that he can escape to. And that's like, and even if we go back to what Kate is playing, she has that scene where she explains sort of the baggage of being rich, where she says the famous quote, I think is, um, if you have, if you've had money all your entire life, either you despise it, which we do, but you're only comfortable around other people who have it and despise it. So, all the rich people in this movie, Freddie Miles, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, who we'll get to, Marge, Dickie, they're trying to escape this identity of being rich, but Ripley is trying to escape the identity of being queer into this life of comfort. Poor people. Also miserable. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think one other thing we can talk about, class jealousy, it sort of dovetails into this theme of trying... Tom is trying to escape into this life. So he is jealous of, of Dickie and Marge and, and definitely jealous of, you know, in the contrast between him and Freddie, where Freddie's very comfortable being Dickie's friend, but Tom is not. And he's always trying to prove something. So class jealousy is another theme. And the flip side of that is that Dickie's always making fun of how low class Tom is. When I remember that scene where he says such low class. Does this guy know anything? He said it as a joke, but it's also indicative of really what he thinks. Yeah, that's class is so fascinating in this movie because we're both immigrants. And we both know, and I'm sorry if I'm speaking for you, but we both know that Americans like pretending that there's no class system in America Mm -hmm. when there is. So I find the portrait of you know, this people pretending that they're not rich while being rich and while knowing that if they need money, they can just, like, ask their parents or, like, yeah. their trust fund to, you know, like, to get Gucci and to get yachts and stuff. I've always found it so delicious. And mm-hmm. I think maybe that's one of the reasons why, at some point, I don't feel like Americans really embrace the movie because it's such a critique of, of America. And I had never noticed... For instance, and I don't think it's a coincidence. Do you remember? I had never noticed this before. That when 
Tom, you know, fake meets Dickie and Marge for the first time. Mm. One of the first things that Dickie says to him is, you're so white. Mm, yes. And he goes, Marge, have you seen anyone so white? And this is said in the 50s. Yeah, and I'm wondering how much that these people, you know, take with them to Italy to escape both class and having to deal with racism mm-hmm. in America. Yeah. And now they're they're so out of touch with reality that they don't think of themselves as rich and white, apparently. Because yeah. God knows there's no one whiter than Gwyneth Paltrow. Yes. <laughs> that actually brings me to sort of like, you know, when we're talking about favorite moments for, for the other actors in the movie, and we'll get to Kate in a little bit. I think that, that scene you were talking about is why Jude Law is still an enduring movie star because that introduction of him, golden, sun-soaked, just so beautiful, you know, laying there in his bikini, so beautiful, is why he's still a big, huge movie star. People still watch him. Wasn't he paying homage to himself in that Young Pope shoot from a few months ago? Yes. Where he's walking around in a Speedo again? In Italy. Yes. Go Jude. <laughs> more, more Speedos and more full frontal, please. Yeah. Another person who's really delicious in this movie is Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, who also embodies sort of this carefree American rich boy who just does what he wants. Tom wants to be Dickie. Tom Ripley wants to be Dickie, but he definitely wants to be able to intimidate Freddie Miles, but he can't. And my favorite moment of Freddie Miles is... Dickie and Marge are having sex in the in the boat, and Tom is looking at them. And then, you know, Freddie goes, "Tommy, Tommy, how's the peeping, Tommy?" Tommy, how's the peeping? Tommy, how's the peeping? Tommy, 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 Tommy. Tommy. He's such a dick. I, you know, I, I, I never grew fond of Philip Seymour Hoffman, and I know he's one of the greatest American actors of the last couple of decades, and I can, I can, I can acknowledge that, but I never warmed up to him because I loathe his character in this movie, and it's one of those things where you meet, you know, an actor for the first time probably. Because mm. I ended up, I ended up watching Magnolia, which came out in '99, also after Ripley. And I was like, this is such a douchebag. And I never, I never learned how to love him because I was like, he's, he was pretty miles for me for all of eternity. So we can blame the talented Mr. Ripley for that. Yes. So you are a fan of Gwyneth. So why don't you tell our listeners you, what is your favorite Gwyneth moment in this movie? Ooh, how, how long do we have? I don't want to turn this into the Coop podcast. <laughs> um, I don't think I have a specific moment that I love Gwyneth in because what I like is the warmth that she brought Marge, which is something that I don't think people knew she had before. Mm-hmm. I just really love the warmth she brings. And, you know, I it was she was always thought of as such an icy blonde, kind of like a Grace Kelly figure. Mm-hmm. And in this movie I think that you can see how much she really loves Sticky. And I think one of my favorite scenes is when she, every time she cries. <laughs> she does cry a lot. <laughs> a lot, yes. And the scream, obviously. Remember it was in the trailer? Yeah. 
and it's taken out of context in a trailer, but it's such a fabulous scream. The crying reminded me of something that I read. So one of the pans of this movie was a review from Amy Tobin, who is a critic that I love. Um, and she wrote this review in The Village Voice. She was not a fan of the talent, Mr. Ripley. But she said about Gwyneth is, she says, Gwyneth Paltrow is more tiresome than usual, indulging her specialty of scrunch-faced, tearless crying. <laughs> so, that's so vicious. I know. We talked about the actors, but we didn't talk about Matt Damon, who plays the talented Mr. Ripley himself. And I think... This is probably his best performance. It's definitely the best part he's ever had. Do you agree? I agree. It's also my favorite. Yeah, it is, without a doubt. I love two scenes for him. When Jude Law, beautiful sun-soaked, tan Jude Law, is in the tub, which is a scene I think that gave erections to lots of young queer boys at the time. And Matt Damon, as Tom Ripley, says to him, can I get in? I think that's a fantastic moment for, um, for Damon. And he plays it really well with sort of desire, but also kind of trying to keep it in and not show it. What's your favorite scene of Damon's? I have a couple. I, one of my favorites is at the very beginning when he's learning all about jazz to, to know what to talk to Dickie about because he's learned from his father that Dickie's a huge jazz fan and Tom's apparently more into classical music and he's trying to memorize all the songs and identify them just by listening to them and then a Chet Baker song plays and he goes I can't even tell if this is a man or a woman which is also the you know the that duality in his identity like who is he like what is he yeah yeah and and then when he ends up like singing that song, he almost sounds like Chet Baker, which is, I yeah. wonder how that was for Matt Damon. And then I also love the other moment when he and Dickie go to a jazz club and the Italian host asks him to come and sing a song. And it's that song, To Vofal Americano, which then a few years later became this like huge dance hit. Remember? There was like oh, a electronic yeah. version. Now I yeah. remember, yeah. And I think that movie put that song in the and the map again. Yeah. Yeah. I also like the Damon scene later on in the film where Ripley is at the piano playing and basically confessing to the murder of Dickie and asking Peter to absolve him. He's finally opening up. I love that scene and it's the scene where you finally feel something for Ripley and Damon does it really great. Whatever you do, however terrible, however hurtful, it all makes sense, doesn't it? In your head. You never meet anybody who thinks they're a bad person. Don't you just take the past and put it in a room in the basement and lock the door and never go in there? That's what I do. And then you meet someone special, and all you want to do is toss them the key. Say, open up, step inside. But you can't. Because it's dark. And there are demons. And if anybody saw how ugly it is. So now that we've talked about, you know, Jude and Gwyneth and everyone, let's talk about Kate. So I remember, you know, I love a lot about Kate in this movie. It is 
if you're just if we're just looking at about movies that she made, it's definitely in the top percentile of the movies that she made. A scene that I really love is the opera scene. I love that scene because they're watching the opera. Tom Ripley and Meredith Lowe, Damon and Blanchett, watching uh, Tchaikovsky's Eugene Onegin, and it's the sort of fatal duel um, scene, and somebody you know is dying, and Tom is so verklempt, and he's you know he's crying, tears are streaming down his eyes, and he's so in his this world entrapped by that. And I think that's me when I watch Kate. <laughs> oh, that's very cute. So, so I love that scene. What is your favorite scene of Kate in this film? There's a thing that when I was preparing for this, to do this with you, and, you know, I kept thinking how Gwyneth, I think even in reviews, you definitely read more reviews of the movie recently than mm-hmm. I have. Mm-hmm. And I think in reviews, people would comment on how Gwyneth was Grace Kelly. Mm-hmm. But finding an equivalent for Kate is very difficult. Mm-hmm. And I kept thinking how, you know, she reminded me of like a Jean Tierney because she's so glamorous meets Vera Miles in like psycho character. Because mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I remember the first time I watched the movie, I was terrified for Kate the entire time. I was like, when is Tom really going to murder her? Because she's so nosy. She's, she's always up in his business. So always. true. She complicates his story. She, but the thing is, in the end, she makes him kill other people, but never her. Right. She's like this nosy, like Hitchcock, Teresa Wright in Shadow of a Doubt character, where she's so nosy, she's everywhere, and you're always worried that they're going to murder her. But one of my favorite moments is a moment after the opera scene where she's not just being nosy, but she's also very vulnerable. And she knows that Tom, who's pretending to be Dickie, who's pretending to be in love with Marge, doesn't want to be with her. And she has a huge crush Mm. on Tom as Dickie. Mm-hmm. And they take this like big and carry carriage ride, and he drops her home. And then when he's about to say something about like you know like I'm in love with March, and she goes, "You should always save pain for daylight." That and, is. Oof. Oh yeah. I was like, it reminded me of one of my favorite lines in any movie, uh, in Breakfast at Tiffany's, when in the cab in the last scene, Audrey Hepburn gets a note, and she goes. A girl can't read this kind of note without her lipstick on. <laughs> and it's so beautiful because the movie is modern. I mean, it it doesn't feel like a classic movie. Mm-hmm. But also, Kate is living in both worlds. She's like, she gets this wonderful, almost campy lines mm-hmm. that you want to quote endlessly. But she's still very much in a 1999 movie. She's not, she doesn't feel like she's acting somewhere else. Yeah. So will you meet me tomorrow? Just to say goodbye properly, remember the daylight, so it's not just this. Of course, Meredith, I'm sorry, of course I'll meet you. We should always save pain for daylight. My second favorite Kate scene is one that we've already talked about, the money scene, where she shows us her true haughty grandeur. Has anyone ever been more deliciously pompous? The truth is that it, well, if you've had money your entire life, even if you despise it, which we do, agreed, you're only truly comfortable around other people who have it and despise it. 
know. I've never admitted that to anyone. What I love is her voice modulation. It reminded me of that line from The Great Gatsby where he says about Daisy, her voice had money or what was, I don't can't remember the line exactly. Oh, right. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I know yeah, what you're about. I think. And so she, in her voice and in her accent, which is a very specific 1950s patrician East American, sort of like East USA accent, you can hear the money. Not only because she's the, she's the one character who explicitly talks about being rich, but you can just hear it whenever... Whenever she goes, you can hear the money in her voice. She is a rich bitch. Do you think this movie is the reason why Scorsese cast her as Catherine Hepburn five years later? I mean, probably, because Catherine Hepburn probably was also sort of like Meredith Lowe from the same milieu. Yeah. And she even walks like this. Like She's like, I don't know how she... She's, like, she's so incredible in this movie. I mean, in The Aviator, she's introduced walking. And in this movie... She has that long scene where they're walking on the steps, on the Spanish steps, which is in Rome, which is a beautiful scene. So there are, a lot of her acting is walking. <laughs> <laughs> it's really great to, it, you know, a trivia that I've, I've read and I was very surprised by is that Meredith Slug was a character that Antony Minghella created for the movie. She's not in the Patricia Highsmith book, but she feels so just... It, she feels like she is in this story. I think he just wanted to scare the shit out of us. She's, <laughs> I, she's always in danger. And I'm always like, you're in danger, girl, every time Meredith shows up. Even after I've watched this movie at least 20 times. Mm-hmm. And I'm always so worried for her. The context of it was in Kate's career. I think it's a movie that people think about a lot. And I think that's because 16 years later, she famously played another Patricia Highsmith creation in Carol aired in Todd Haynes' Carol. So once, when that movie came, and it is arguably Kate's most beloved performance and character, people started talking about how she was married to Slope before. So this is definitely, I think, in the top of Kate's movies. It's also when you think about her career, um, this was her follow-up to her big breakout in Elizabeth, although it was filmed before Elizabeth was released. So if you think about the 1988 Oscars, where Kate and Gwyneth were fighting to win, Gwyneth in um, Shakespeare in Love and Kate in Elizabeth, they had actually filmed this movie before that award season, which I think prompted Gwyneth in her teary-eyed speech to say, my friend Kate Blanchett, when she was thanking the other nominees. Father and I had decided, we were being such ridiculous boys about it, we had decided that we were either going to be Team Kate or Team Gwyneth, and he (laughs) was Team Kate, and I was Team Gwyneth, so for the longest time, I refused to even watch Elizabeth, because I was like, I am a Gwyneth boy, and now I love them both equally. And the other thing that I, you know, reading these reviews, and they all sort of like, you know, came, like this movie came in the wake of Elizabeth. And I think, you know, Peter Bradshaw in The Guardian, for instance, says 
Blanchett does her very considerable best with Meredith, though yet again I wonder if anyone is ever going to give her a role equal to Elizabeth. So it's very funny that critics at the time, in 1999, thought that Kate Blanchett will never get another part as good as Elizabeth. And they were right for a time. The early 2000s were not a very good time to be a Kate Blanchett fan. But obviously, she did a lot since then. So it's funny to read reviews like that. Going back to the queer scenes, I wanted to go back to this other review from also the same review from Amy Tobin, who we talked about uh, what she said about Gwyneth. What she said about Jude Law was also very funny to me. She says, Law queens his way through the supposedly straight role, which is it's funny to me because he is sort of playing the queer... Um, object of desire, but I didn't think he was queening his way. That's so wrong. <laughs> That's so funny. It's so funny to go back and read how people were talking about things that today, if they said something like that, someone would fire them, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But she was obviously being very narrow-minded, because I think all the men in this movie are queer. Yes. All the men. Because Marge and Meredith are the ones who are very straight, right? They talk about husbands and getting married, while well, all the boys are like fucking anything that moves. Which is sort of adds to the queer sensibility of the movie, because we know that gay men and straight women are sort of allies <laughs> in their obje objectification of beautiful men like Jude Law. Oh my god, Meredith is such a beard. <laughs> I never thought about it. Yes, she's the ultimate beard. Yeah. Jack Davenport, who is who plays Peter Smith Kingsley, that character is a sort of... Old, only explicitly queer character to me because he's the one who like wants to build a life with Tom Ripley and sort of wants to be with him very openly while everybody else is just you know hiding their desires as maybe queer men in the 50s did. Is Matt Damon in the German What's The Good German? Yeah. No, he's not in The Good German. That's um, Toby Spider-Man. Yeah. Toby Maguire. Right. Obviously, we talked about Kate and Gwyneth and how they're connected together. Kate and Jude, no connection except they're two blonde gods. <laughs> Famously, when you know there is this photo that goes around of the five, or is it five? I think it's five of them. The five actors was Mingella, in which Gwyneth um, had brown hair. You know the movie she was in for that brown hair. Bounce. Ben Affleck romance. Movie so bad. <laughs> So anyway, that, that sort of photo goes around every time. If, and people always... I think that is why this movie sort of still lives in people's minds. Is that movie... That photo comes up and it's like these people who are still all of them. With the exception, of course, of Philip Seymour Hoffman who, you know, passed away a few years ago. But they're all five amazing, respected actors who people love and who've made a lot of movies. And so Gwyneth doesn't do any, make movies anymore. But one of one of my favorite trivias about this movie is that to the premiere of Ripley, Kate took Juliana Margulies as her date. You remember that video? I showed it to you. I do. <laughs> and which is very funny to me because I think they did that movie about the concentration camp during the Second World War two years before Ripley. Two that? or three years Paradise Road, which had a killer cast. In addition to Juliana and Kate, there's Frances McDormand, there's Jennifer Ely and Glenn Close. 
but it's a movie that nobody talks about now. I mean, I know nothing about it, but I know that Kate and Juliana were in it, and that's probably why Juliana Margulies was Kate's date to the premiere of the Talented Mystery Play. I thought it was that Kate was like a huge ER fan or something like that. <laughs> Maybe that too. <laughs> The movie wasn't as ecstatically reviewed at the time. It was sort of well-reviewed and it was successful, you know, it made almost a hundred million dollars in the U.S. box office, which is for a movie like this now is almost unheard of. Yet it was thought of as not very successful despite that because it was expected to be this big huge Oscar juggernaut and in the end it wasn't. Um, it did receive several Oscar nominations, but the most prominent one was the Jude Law nomination. And then all the other nominations were in uh, Below the Line. So it received nominations for that, the screenplay costumes, score, and art direction. Um, and I think that sort of, at the time, made it feel like it's not as successful as it should have been. And a lot of that, I think, is about it being the follow-up to Minghella's The English Patient which just three years before that was huge, made a gazillion dollars, and also was took a real hold on the culture, even being spoofed on, um, on Seinfeld. So I think for that, for the talented service to come after it, it was sort of always compared, and maybe at the time people found it lacking. But I think now it's very funny when you think about it 20 years later, and this, this year in December will be the 20th anniversary of its release. I think more people love Ripley than they love The English Patient, and it certainly has become better loved now than it was then. I hope so, because I still think The English Patient is so boring. I love The English Patient. <laughs> <laughs> but I love Ripley more. That's true. Do you, let's talk about the costumes. So it's very funny. Um, Kate is somebody who's always had a special relationship with costumes. She's somebody who wears them well. Um, and people always talk, not just, you know, when she goes out to red carpets, you know, playing the movie star, but even in character, she, people always talk about her costumes. In this movie, she only has a few scenes, but her costumes are very memorable. What do you, what is a memorable I love the opera dress, obviously, because yeah. she has like the little bouquet in her, between her boobs. But I really love the light green uh, dress she wears when she, again, just snoops when poor Tom Ripley's like Gucci and she just shows up. And she's wearing this like beautiful light green, almost like sea foam green yeah. dress. And she just, and it's so simple, like nothing she wears in this movie is. It's like a coat dress. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that that actually is my favorite costume of hers. And funny that you know these costumes were by you know a renowned costume designer Anne Ross, who surprisingly only costumed Kate this one time. Huh. You know what you didn't talk about mm -hmm. that I I remember just right now. I thought it was so interesting is how Meredith is kind of like she's rich, obviously, 
but she's kind of like a big nerd, right? She's like a lighting the piazza kind of girl because she's traveling with her aunt, who's Celia Weston, right? Mm-hmm. Celia Weston. And she's yeah. always pretending that she knows everyone who's like, you know, like an it person because she's like, of course I know Tom. Yeah. But how can she know Tom when she only knows Tom as Dickie? Yeah. Or she's like, of course I know Freddie. Like she's pretending she knows, she's like, she knows everyone. So maybe she is another Tom Ripley in that she's trying to, you know, to be who she's not is or a heightened version of herself. Maybe she's like now Voyager and she was, I don't know, she had a makeover and now she's going to Europe to meet new men. Yeah, and that's why she's the one who complicates Tom's life. Just, I love that in the end, and you know, this movie's 20 years old, so we can definitely spoil it. So in the end, Tom, after he kills Dickie and gets away with the murder, and he's trying to build this life with Peter Smith Kingley, the character played by Jack Davenport. When he, you know, they go, they're going to Athens, and then Meredith materializes at the end of the movie in the ship, calling him Dickie because she has always known Tom as Dickie and he thought he had gotten away with the murder and now he has the choice. He can either kill Meredith and everybody she's traveling with, which I guess is the reason why he decides not to kill her. To your point earlier where you said you thought she was going to die and he kills poor Peter Smith Kingsley. Poor Jack. Yeah. I do want a sequel, although they're both much older now, of, like, what did they do in Athens after he killed Peter Smith Kingley, Meredith, and Tom Ripley? Although since Meredith was a character created for the movie, she was not in any of the of the sequels. And, you know, when we talk about Kate, we have to talk about what she wears. And we talked about what she wore in the movie, but what did she wear to sort of promote this movie? You like her Oscar movie, right? Her Oscar outfit. It was the black goatee with, I just remember all like the bracelets and all the gold she had in it. She looked like, like a goddess, like almost like a Greek goddess with her bare, did it have like bare shoulders and like bare back? Mm-hmm. I should, oh God, that sounds like a, like a gay porn podcast. <laughs> But I, I remember all, like, her dangling, like, gold bracelets and how easy she makes everything look, which is also what she does in the movie. Like, Meredith is so easy. She feels like like cotton candy almost. Yeah. Um, I love that Gautier um, dress, too. It's one of my favorite sort of Kate Oscar dresses. Like, if you were ranking the Kate Oscar dresses, I would think this would be my second favorite after like the year she won for no my favorite is the valentino she wore when she won her oscar for the aviator oh really yes huh. that yellow was the mauve sash is my favorite yeah huh. this is my second favorite but the galliano the year before when oh. she was nominated for elizabeth is oh, your favorite my... oh yes um, so that's your favorite Oscar dress. So this now, since you're my guest this, for this episode, I just want to ask you general questions about Kate that okay. have nothing to do with the talented Mr. Ripley. Go for it. And we're right there, since we were talking about dresses and couture and Kate. When has Kate taken your breath away with what she was wearing to, on the red carpet? 
so many times, but the one that comes to mind instantly is that pink Balenciaga she pulled out of the archives to wear when she was promoting Blue Jasmine. That is gorgeous. And people, like, all these, like, basic people were saying she looked like a lamp. And I'm like, well, so what? I'm like, yeah, like, I mean, I wish my lamps were this fucking stylish. That was a gorgeous dress. Um, and I remember you and I have talked. Remember when she wore that Christian Lacroix? She, that she went to some event in Shanghai. Oh, the red one. Yes. Oh, wow, yes. We have gushed about that a lot. Yes. You and I. And yeah. also the Gilles, she wore to the a can for Carol. Yes. The, the paper motif. Yeah. 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 So she's always great on, you know, she is maybe the best person in the world who can wear things. <laughs> As clothes were. Who's your favorite Kate scene partner? Rooney Mara and Carol. Of course. That's the best answer. Mm-hmm. Kate has said on Ellen DeGeneres, that's her favorite person that she has kissed on screen. Oh. What do you think is Kate's most underrated performance? That is like such a good question because she's one of those actors who a lot of people say is overrated constantly. And I actually really like her a lot in The Shipping News. Oh, wow. That is not a beloved movie. People do not like that movie. What do you like about that? It's it's one of her other sort of smaller parts. She's the most memorable thing in the movie. Like she has like one scene and she's just like changing her clothes basically, and like she's the only person you can think of. Like, also I do not for one second believe that Kevin Spacey like she would marry someone like Kevin Spacey, but whatever, that's another story. <laughs> you know, famously she was offered the lead in that movie, which I think is the role that Julianne Moore in the end played. And she turned it down because she didn't find it interesting. And she was like, I'd rather do something that I haven't done before, which I guess was that small part. Okay. One other, who would you like to see her work with that she hasn't worked with before? I think that Pedro Almodovar would do amazing things to her and with her. Yes. She should start learning Spanish pronto. She should. <laughs> and what is your favorite line delivery of hers in any movie? Do your worst, Mr. Hughes. <laughs> From the aviator. That's that's like a good that's a good one. She like a little adventure, Miss Hepburn. Do your worst, Mr. Hughes. Any last thoughts about Kate Blanchett or the talented Mr. Ripley? Well, I'm glad that I got over my ridiculous fight with my father about being Tim Quinneth or Team Kate, and now I'm everyone's team and I don't know, it's just it's such a delight to go back and watch this movie which I hadn't watched in a few years, uh, but I obviously did to prep for this. And it's such a delight to know that 20 years ago, she gave my favorite of her performances. Mm -hmm. And in the 20 years since, she's done nothing but turn in incredible work. Like most actors, I feel, would retire after something like Elizabeth and Ripley. And Mm -hmm. she just kept giving us more. Yep, and she continues to give us more. And also, you know, as a theater critic, she, I think, thinks of herself primarily as a stage actor. Unfortunately, she doesn't come to New York as much as we would like her to, although she did come to New York a lot of times. And you've seen her on stage in The Maids, I think, right? Mm -hmm. At The Present. Mm -hmm. I was not a fan of The Present, but you were. I'm not a fan of The Present. I'm a fan (laughs) of Kate Blanchett in The Present, which I think is her sexiest performance.
Thank you so much, Jose, for coming to talk to me about the talented Mr. Ripley. This was so much fun and a joy. And why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you? Well, thank you, Kate. You can find me on Twitter at Jose Solis Mayan. And yeah, go there. All my links to all my work are there. Yes. Jose is a great Twitter follow, so give him a follow. And you can find me on Twitter at M-E underscore says and follow the podcast at Sundays with Kate. And until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you.